Great. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me read verses um, 1 to 11. But I warn you that verses 9 to 11 are so good that I don't really feel like I can do justice to them in this this afternoon. So just as a heads up, next Sunday, Phil is going to just take those verses and we're going to really, you'll see why when we get to them, because they're so good. Okay, uh, 1 Corinthians 6. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers? The very fact you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, I I don't know about you, but if you can vaguely remember what we were doing last week, and believe me, I I, I forgive you if you weren't here or if you uh, don't remember, I struggle sometimes to remember what we do from week to week. But the argument last week was sexual immorality is something that must be dealt with seriously within the church. And the picture was of yeast and a, or leaven and a little bit that kind of grows and grows and, and, and can cause havoc in the whole church. And then suddenly he goes from that to talk about taking each other to court. You're like, that's quite a gear shift, Paul. Why the shift? I don't think there is a shift, actually. I think Paul is saying the same thing applies to disputes between Christians. So it may be this morning, this afternoon, it may be that as you sit here today, you think, I'm I'm not currently taking anyone to court in Globe Church. And I'm not planning to, I don't think at the moment. And therefore, I'm not sure how relevant this is going to be. I think we're going to find this is massively relevant to us. Because what I want us to do is to look back from the big thing of taking someone to court and trace it right back to see where the seeds of it lie. And then I think we'll see why this is really relevant to us. But we need to get the tone. Paul is pretty shocked. This is quite John McEnroe, uh, Paul here. You know, you cannot be serious, right? What are you doing? Is it, can this really be the situation within the church that someone is taking another Christian to, you cannot be serious. 
interesting. If you just flick back to chapter 4, verse 14, have a look at this. Paul wrote, and we saw the first big section of 1 Corinthians is about wisdom, understanding wisdom rightly. He says, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Okay, now jump down to chapter 6, verse 5. I say this to shame you. Do you see, Paul is kind of, you've got to feel a bit of his tone. I'm not writing this, actually, I, I, I am writing this to shame you. Don't miss my point. I cannot believe, Paul says, that this is happening. You are becoming a spectacle to the watching world. They're all looking on and they think it's a joke. What are you doing? Well, I've got um, various points that we're going to work through as we go through. And the first one is this, um, as we think about this theme of conflict. Oh, James, you can press the button. Um, My first big thing is the inevitability of conflict. I want to show you the, the inevitability of conflict. Look what he says in chapter 6, verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? What Paul is upset about is not the fact that there's a dispute, it's the fact that they're dealing with it wrongly. See? Disputes, conflicts, are always going to happen within churches. Literally, people are always going to kind of clash into each other, be set against one another. It's kind of inevitable within a church because we're all sinful people. We're all different people. We have different temperaments, different preferences, different ideas, different understandings, different priorities, and therefore disputes are going to rise. So let's not get into some kind of like dreamland where Globe Church is going to be like this Disney church where everyone smiles and no one ever falls out with one another. That would be unreal and would be seriously weird. Disputes are inevitable. And disputes will come from all sorts. Let me just try some of this. I just want to show you how disputes can come and uh, how they might grow. I got a, a, here you go, here's six ways that disputes might come. See if any of these ring true with you. Perhaps it's carelessness. It wasn't intentional. I was just a bit thoughtless. I just didn't think, right? I didn't intend to harm you. I just, I was just careless in what I did. And my carelessness has caused you to get, and now there's a conflict between now, now there's a disagreement, now there's upset. This happened to me once. I had a situation, I needed to tell someone something that um, I thought wasn't that big a deal. It was just that they weren't able to help in a group anymore. And uh, I just thought it wasn't that big a deal. So I phoned this person and said, um, actually, you can't help in this group anymore. And she went, oh, that's fine. Okay, thank you. Five minutes later, her mum phoned and said she's in floods of tears. I had no intention of hurting her. I was careless. I was just thoughtless. It was stupid and careless. Right? Carelessness. Or secondly, what about misunderstandings? Sometimes a misunderstanding can lead to huge disputes and conflicts between people. This is why, can I say, emails and texts are a terrible way to communicate. If you want to encourage someone, send them an email or a text. If you want to confront someone about something, do it face to face. Do not send emails that are critical. It's the it, it leads to huge upset and misunderstanding because I can't tell in an email whether you are, like, what does that phrase mean? What is that? 
I don't know, I don't know. And I think we need to have the courage to deal with things face to face. Lots of misunderstandings come up when we don't deal with things properly. Or perhaps it's a personality clash. Perhaps there's just someone in the church who just is slightly irritating to you. We can be big enough to admit that that's true, can't we? That there are some people who by nature I get on really well with. And there are some people, I mean, I'm not making this absolutely personal. I don't want you to sit there and try and work out where you fit. I love all of you very much. But there are just some people who we just clash. They're just, just the way they do things or the way they say things. or the Oh, it just feels, they're just so different to us. And disputes can rise. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to provoke you a little bit. I'm trying to say, can you see anything in you? Can you see anything? Sorry. You need the key to get into the kids' work. Excellent. <laughs> disputes rise. <laughs> Carelessness. Thank you, Robin. Uh, good. Personality class. <laughs> This is going to be great on the recording. Uh, um, sometimes people just rubbish up the wrong way. And, and, and even talking to them. You know when you rub your fingers down the blackboard and it kind of like, is, ah, ah. sometimes even just people in the church, can, we talk to them and it just feels like that sometimes, perhaps, for some of us. And so disputes and conflicts, and we can kind of get a bad feeling about someone. Or perhaps it's stubbornness. We're just really stubborn. We're having a disagreement about something. And even though we think actually they're probably right, we're too stubborn to admit it. We've become more and more entrenched in our position. Um, and if you're, in, if, if you're married, you may well have experienced this. You, just, you find yourself having an argument about something and you think, I'm not even sure this is this important, but we've come this far and there's no way I'm backing down. <laughs> this is, I, my feet are standing here and we are staying here. And that can happen within churches, right? We can have disagreements about something and you forget almost what the disagreement is about. It becomes this, I've got to win this. Stubbornness. Fifthly, jealousy. We can have disputes because actually there's someone in the church who we're just profoundly jealous of. We wish that we had their gifts or their looks or their whatever it might be. And we can't love that person because we're just consumed by jealousy. And lastly, sometimes we're just plain wrong. We're just plain selfish and sinful and stupid. And we say things that are unkind and harsh. And the reason for taking time to do that is to show you that actually conflict will bubble up in all sorts of different ways. And I don't know, even as I've talked about that, perhaps there's been some things that you've been thinking, actually, that's, yeah, I can see how that could happen. So conflict is inevitable, but what I want to show you is that what Paul says is what matters is the way that we deal with it. In Corinth, the conflict, well, let's go to the second thing. The second thing is the escalation of conflict. Because what has happened in Corinth has got completely out of hand. It has grown into this massive thing that is now being dealt with in the courts outside of the church. We have to understand the nature of conflict. When a conflict starts, however small it might be, it might be a tiny, tiny little thing. Conflict is a monster that is never satisfied. It always wants to push you further. Don't sell for that. You see the way they treated you? That's outrageous. 
we shouldn't be talked to like that. And conflict will always push for escalation. It, was always, it will always whisper to you, let's take this further. Come on, let's go to the next level. When I was um, about 15, I had a paper round. I hated my paper round. Um, it was a free paper. So it wasn't like it even got tips at Christmas. It was like the worst thing. And it was the Southampton Advertiser. Which is so depressing. It's not, it, doesn't even, it doesn't even pretend to be a newspaper. No, we're, we're advertising. That's basically what we do. Anyway, um, one, one week, on the front page of the Advertiser, was this headline. Thou shalt not have thy sofa. That was the headline on the front page. Oh, interesting. And what I saw in the paper were two faces that I recognized from my church where I grew up. And they were locked in a bitter dispute in the courts over the payment of a sofa. And it was front page. And I had to, I had to 200 times fold up their faces and shove them through someone's letterbox and say, this is my church. Do you not see? Do you not see how... You know, that, that conflict, it doesn't start in the court. It doesn't start there. It starts with something small. All it needed was someone to say, this is stupid. Who cares? But no one was willing to. And it ended up there. And we sit here and we think, there's no way I'd ever take anyone to court. Are you sure? Are you really sure? Conflict is a monster that pushes us for escalation. It starts so far back. It grows and grows and it gets out of hand. How on earth did we get to this point? It never just sits there. It's infectious and it spreads. Do you know, it's like, um, it's like the leaven we were talking about, the yeast we were talking about last time. It just grows. You can't stop it. Stop it, yeast. No, I'm going to keep going. Turn to um, Proverbs 17. Proverbs has got a lot to say about this. Have a look at uh, Proverbs 17. Proverbs 17, verse 4. Uh, Proverbs, it's actually, sorry, chapter 17, verse 14. Proverbs 17, verse 14. It's nothing like looking at a verse and going, that's got nothing to do with... Okay, 17, 14. Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam, so drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. Isn't that brilliant? It's like breaching a dam. You know what it's like when you build a dam on the beach. We've all done that, right? You find a little river on the beach and you build a great big dam and then it just gets one little crack in it and suddenly the whole thing is gone. You start a quarrel, it's like that. It's an infectious, powerful, unstoppable thing. Or go to Proverbs 26, verse 17. Proverbs 26, verse 17. Because what happens in the church is that when a quarrel is started, other people then get brought in. Other people join in and take sides. And you go to someone and you say, do you know what Billy Blob did to me? And you go, no, it's terrible. It's really, really terrible. And, and they join in. Look what Proverbs 26 verse 17 says. Like one who grabs a stray dog by the ears is someone who runs into a quarrel, not their own. 
It's like grabbing a stray dog by its ears. You're going to get damaged. You're going to get hurt. It's a bad idea. Leave the stray dog alone. And yet we draw people in. And that's what's happening in Corinth. It's just got completely out of control. And the church in Corinth, who so love the world and who so want to be impressive to the world and who so want the world to say, oh yes, you're right. They run to the world to say, will you vindicate me? I mean, this is ridiculous. And Paul is basically saying, seriously, how can this happen? How can you be... Imagine we had a disagreement in our family about what film we were going to watch one night. And I said, right, and go, hang on a second. And I got all our neighbours out in the courtyard and they said, listen, guys, I need your help. Can we all gather around? We're having a dispute and we'd like you to help us to settle it. They go, you are ridiculous. What a crazy way to behave. What sort of a family are you? And yet that's what this church is doing. They're taking their conflict before the world and going, oh, can you help us? And they're going, what are you doing? It escalates. And the reality is, you see, that at the foundation of conflict, the reason why conflicts keep bubbling up and conflicts keep happening between us is because fundamentally there is a bigger conflict going on, which is a conflict between God and humanity. Humanity has set itself in conflict against God. And because I'm in conflict with God, it bubbles over into all my relationships. It always escalates and escalates. And you see it on a national level, an international level. As politicians mess around with words and escalate and escalate. Thirdly, let me show you the the future of conflict. Paul says, do you not know? Do you not know the future? Look at this. This is amazing. Verse 2. So we are going to speed up. We've only got to verse 2, but we are going to get faster. This is why I'm leaving the last bit for Phil next week. Verse 2, or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? (laughs) Wow. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Come on, church. Do you not know that we will judge the angels? I read that and went, "Uh, no, I was fairly hazy on that. I'm fairly hazy on the judging the angels thing, Paul. (laughs) Give us a little bit more. No. Do you not know we'll judge the angels? Come on. Obvious. This is big stuff. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that there is a staggering future for the church. To give it a posh language, don't worry too much about, but the church is an eschatological community. It is a community with a future. Eschatology just means the future. And and things of the future. We have a future focus. Here is our future. We will judge the world. In fact, throw into that the angels as well. That's, That's your future. And Paul says, if that's your future, are you serious that you can't sort this out now? Now we may have one or one or two questions about us judging the world. Let me quickly run through this. When it says you will judge the world, let's firstly understand that God is the great judge. Right? God is the judge of all the world who will settle all conflict and who will remove all evil and all wickedness. And the conflict between us and him will all be removed and God is the great judge. 
But God has entrusted his judgment to someone, to one man. God has entrusted all judgment to Jesus Christ. John chapter 5, Jesus is the judge of all. So God is judge, the Father, and he's entrusted that to Jesus, his son. Now, if you are a Christian, you are someone for whom Christ has died. When he died on a cross, he settled the conflict between you and God. He brought peace between you and God. And you've been brought into relationship or to union with Christ. You now are in Christ. You are with Christ. You're kind of joined to Christ. Therefore, if he is judging, you're there judging with him. You share his throne. You reign with him. That's the language the Bible uses. Now, this is mind-blowing, but we will be there. You see this, right? Let me just, let me just try and spell this out a bit more because this is uh, good for us to get a big view of Jesus and sometimes our view of Jesus is way too small. In Psalm 2, we are told that God the Father installs Jesus as his king and he says, I will give you the nations as your inheritance. You will rule over them. You will judge them. You will crush them. You will break them to pieces like pottery. Father says that to Jesus. Go to Revelation 2 for a second. Revelation 2. Revelation 2, verse 26, page 1235. Let's just try and nail this. This is Paul's argument. This is why you shouldn't dispute with one another because you're going to judge the angels. So you better be clear you're going to judge the angels. That will stop you fighting with one another. That seems to be what Paul's saying. Well, not fighting. It's helping you to deal with it properly. Judges 2, um, uh, Revelation 2, verse 26. To the one who is victorious, this is Jesus speaking, and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I've received authority from my Father. Do you see? So Jesus says, I'm the one who has been given authority to rule the nations, to judge the nations, but I will give to anyone who follows me that same authority. You will be part of that. I haven't got time to look at this now, but you could write down for your notes if you want. You look in uh, Romans 16, and it says Satan will soon be crushed under your feet. You are going to judge the angels. You are going to judge Satan. Because one day when Jesus returns in all authority, you will be caught up with him and you will judge. Now, I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know if we're going to be given one angel each to judge. You know, this is your one. (laughs) I don't think so. But in that great moment, as Jesus judges the earth, we as his people, as his eschatological community, we as the Lord's people will stand with him. I find that very, very mind-blowing. But our salvation is so much bigger than we often think. And it's as if Paul says, if you just had the tiniest little glimpse of what is coming, of what you are, of, of what God has done for you, so he says, how on earth can you not sort this out now? How can you not sort it out now? As people who've been brought into this new community, who've been made at peace with God, why can't you sort this out? I say this to shame you. Is it possible there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? And you take one another to court. The future of conflict. 
The future of conflict is that all conflict will end and we will be involved in the judgment of that. You can ask more questions about that to someone afterwards. Here's the fourth thing. Uh, the disaster of conflict. We're doing well. The disaster of conflict. Look what Paul says uh, in verse 6 and 7. But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. It's a disaster. You've, you've completely, you're completely defeated. And even if you win the argument, you've lost everything. And it seems to me that the way that often lawsuits seem to work in our world is that we talk about who's won. Who's won, who's lost. I want to win. I want to win. I, no win, no fear. I want to win this thing. Paul says it's a joke. You're defeated already. You've lost already. God's judgment isn't about winning. God's judgment is about what is right. And therefore, we've got to stop obsessing about trying to make sure that we win, make sure that we get our view, make sure that we get what we deserve. It's a disaster when conflict strikes a church. It causes devastating destruction in the eyes of the world. And then verse 8. Oh, no, halfway through verse 7 is my last point, um, which is the antidote to conflict. And I've got to say, I... I struggle with these two questions. Look at this question, halfway through verse 7. Why not rather be wrong? Feel it. Come on, feel that. Why not rather be wrong? Actually, Paul, I can think of a number of reasons. <laughs> I've got a list of reasons why I'd rather not be wrong. Paul says, seriously? Is it not true that within the church family it is better to be wrong than to breach a dam that will lead you to destruction? Isn't it better to be wrong? And you might say, no, it's not. It's too hard. It's too hard. Well, let me tell you this. God is only asking you to do what he first did for you. God sent his son who was willing to be wrong. Do you not think as they hurled their lies at him, do you not think that all the angels were heaven were screaming, let's go get him, let's set him free. How dare they say things about this darling beloved of heaven. How dare they say things about our prince like this. How dare they lie about him. And Jesus said, hush angels, why not rather be wrong? I'd rather be wronged if it means I can save my, these precious people. Why not rather be wrong? And as they drove the nails into his hands and his feet, it was the greatest injustice that has ever been seen. Jesus was utterly wronged. And in that moment of being so wronged, he won salvation for you. So why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you fight one another, you cheat against one another and do this to your brothers and sisters. Here is the great antidote to conflict. You say, why not rather be wrong like my precious Jesus? Can I say to you, it will cost you. There's a price to pay in being wrong. 
when someone wrongs you, either they pay or you pay. It's very simple. Someone does something wrong to you, one of you has to pay. The gospel says, why not be the one who decides to pay? Jesus said the same thing. If you're offering your sacrifice and you remember a brother has something against you, go be reconciled to your brother. Go do it. Make the first move. And I think this has huge implications for us as a church. That we would be a church where we're ready to be wronged, where we're ready to love one another, where we're ready to say, for the sake of Jesus, I'm willing to be wronged. And you might say to me, but John T, I'll just get taken advantage of. I'll just get walked all over. And you know what? Yeah. Now, just as a, as a caveat, that does not mean that there is not a right place for justice and for righteousness. And I've struggled this week to think, well, what about if something horrific happens within the church? What if someone does something wrong? And I think the answer is that actually the person who deals with that are those who have authority. God places authorities in place to deal with stuff. At a personal level, I think Paul is talking about this. Paul is saying, be willing, be willing to pay that price. Now, for some of us, um, this, I, I realize this may be really painful, and I don't say this lightly, and, and I, I, this is one of those sermons you think, oh, this is so hard to preach, because I know for some of, some of you it's just a real issue, and you've suffered in many horrendous ways, and God knows that, and he sees that, and I want you to know that, but I also want you to see what God's word really says. And for some of us, this is something we're going to need one day. <laughs> Store it in your mind for the next time someone wrongs you. In your house, maybe your flatmates, maybe your husband or wife, maybe your kids, maybe a friend, maybe someone wrongs you even this week and you think, let's not escalate this. Guys, we're going to pray together. Um, And it may be even that after this service, there's someone you need to go talk to and say, can we just chat about something? Um, Let's deal with this. I don't want this to be an issue. Let's sort it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, your word is so practical, it, it touches on things that are so real, and in many ways we kind of would love to sort of avoid and hide under the carpet, but, but you want us to be a family, you want us to be a, a church family who sees who we truly are, and a church family who is serious about loving each other and serious about dealing with disputes and not breaching the dam and letting the water just flood and destroy everything. Father, we ask that you would help us, particularly those of us who have been very seriously wronged in the past. Father, we ask that you would please help us. We find it so hard. We find it so hard. But thank you that you were willing to be wronged, that Jesus, our King, was willing to be wronged at the cross in order that he might save us. And we ask that we might follow him and love him and live like him. In Jesus' powerful, precious name. Amen. It may be that as we, um, as we listen to God's word, we, we feel our weakness, we feel 
We feel our frailty. We feel our past failure. We feel all of those sorts of things. So as we leave this place today, I want to drive you to Jesus. I want to drive you to keep your eyes on him. I want you to take your failure, your fear, your struggle, your all of that stuff. I want you to take it to Jesus and to go knowing that he forgives you, that he loves you, that he would rather be wronged than see you go to hell. That's how much he loves you. Heavenly Father, please help us to go from this place. Help us to go from this place with a confidence in what Jesus has done for us. And Father, we ask that we might be a church who love one another and who deal with disputes when they arise because Christ has so graciously dealt with us. We thank you in his name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat.